Well, I would like to invite you to turn in a Bible or swipe on your phone to the book of Mark. Tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you that we are in the season of Lent. Lent is an old English word for spring, and spring is the season of Easter, and Lent is the season that precedes Easter. It is a 40-day season, not counting Sundays, to recenter. What do we mean by recenter? Well, that's our theme at the Neighborhood Church for Lent, and it's the idea of bringing our wants, our ways back to the center of our life, which is God. And the historic practices associated with Lent are giving and praying and fasting. And by themselves, those practices aren't magic. They're not coins to put into the cosmic vending machine, a.k.a. God, saying, I gave a little bit, so now you give me something. You know, I'm praying a little bit more, so why don't you answer more of them things? You know, I'm fasting, and so why don't I twist your arm to do something powerful in my life? No, 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 no. These are practices that just put us in a position to be acted upon by God. You notice that nifty little phone there? Kelly took issue with it because she's an Apple Maps person. I should encourage her, as you all should, to get on the Google Map train because it's much better. It's much more accurate. It's got a lot better features. And it has this nifty little recenter button. So when you find yourself drifting off the way, you press the recenter button and it brings you back on the path. That's why we give more sacrificially and pray more consistently and fast so that we can bring our lives and our way back to our heart's center. So that's our theme. And tonight, Mark 9, and a very famous and mysterious passage is our focus. And so with all that being said, I want to tell you that Mark chapter 9 is a pivotal moment right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. In Mark in Matthew, in Luke, this scene that we are about to explore stands at the pivotal middle. All before this scene, Jesus is popular, he's healing, he's teaching, there's crowds gathering. Then he has this strange and private scene that we're about to explore. And everything on the other side of this pivotal moment is like a move from popularity to confrontation and challenge. Not, we love you, Jesus, but we want this guy out of here. It's a move from success and toward suffering as he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And a vital question to ask anytime you're in the Gospels is this. When is this happening? When in the story is this happening? Guess what comes before Mark 9? Mark 8. And Mark 8, we have this scene where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah 
And Jesus is like, the Spirit has told you this great mystery. And by the way, me, the Messiah, I'm going to get killed. So then Peter, who just said the right thing, pulls Jesus inside, aside and says, yo, you're wrong. I hate to tell you this, bro, but you're wrong, Jesus. Which is a risky proposition anytime you do that. But this one was really dicey because then Jesus rebukes him back and says something super strong. Do you remember what he says? Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Tonight, don't go around calling people Satan. But Satan is the Hebrew word for the accuser, the dissuader. And so he is saying, Peter, get out of here with that talk of trying to move me off the path. I am centered on the way that God has me, and it goes straight through the cross and straight through death. And so with that in the background, we enter in six days later to this mysterious moment on a mountain. This is a strange story, even for the Bible's sake, that is shrouded in mystery but loaded with meaning, okay? It is shrouded in mystery but loaded with meaning, and Jesus wants Peter to see it. Peter wants, excuse me, Jesus wants Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, to see it so that they might come back down the mountain and toward suffering centered on what God wants and what God is saying. And the question for us tonight is, Will we listen? Mark chapter 9, verse 2. I'm going to read this scene and the conversation that follows. You with me? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured or transformed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is uh, good for us to be here. So let us put up three shelters or tabernacles or even kind of like a shrine. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then Mark interjects here and says he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? You can see they're trying to process what they just witnessed. Then Jesus answers their question. To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things or makes the way straight. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? This is the part of the story that Mark wants us to see Jesus low-key elbowing Peter and saying, remember a week ago? 
But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Let's pray. Lord, I want to echo and say amen to Kelly's prayer, that those of us who are seeking you might find you. And whether or not we scale a mountain and see something as powerful as what we just read, would we just meet you, whether it's in the mountains or the molehills or the everyday spaces and places, would we seek you and find you so that we might be transformed as well? In Jesus' name, amen. Amy and I went to see a movie that came out in 2008, and it was called The Dark Knight. Everybody seen The Dark Knight? I know some of you have seen The Dark Knight. Dude, it came out in 2008, which makes it even crazier that I remember this story I'm about to tell you. We were in this movie, and it's a long movie. And in this movie, which is a Batman movie, there is a character named Harvey Dent. And Harvey Dent is a district attorney. And the first half of the movie makes much ado about this great savior for the city who is putting gobs and gobs of the mafia behind bars. And he is the great hope of Gotham. And he's just this wonderful guy. And Harvey Dent finds himself in a precarious situation halfway through the movie. Harvey Dent is captured by the Joker, played by the late, great Heath Ledger. But so is Harvey Dent's girlfriend. So Harvey Dent's girlfriend is in an abandoned warehouse surrounded by explosives and a cell phone. And then Harvey Dent is in another abandoned warehouse surrounded by explosives and a cell phone. And of course, the Joker decides that Batman can go save them, but only one of them, who's it going to be? Well, spoiler alert, come on, dude, 2008, bro? It doesn't go so well. The girlfriend is lost, but Harvey Dent survives. Harvey Dent, though, is injured, shall we say. So Harvey Dent winds up in the hospital. He's laying in a hospital bed. And the camera is very keen to just fixate on one side of his face, his profile. He gets visited by a nurse that is the Joker, of course, which is hilarious if you go back and look at the scene. The Joker is clearly the Joker and wearing like one of the surgical masks. And so Harvey Dent is sitting there looking at this nurse and he only freaks out when the Joker peels off the mask. I'm like, dude, are you serious? Have you not seen this whole thing? That's side note. Go watch it. It's actually hilarious. So he starts to freak out and he's angry. How could you do this? How could you do this? And all of this tension is building and the Joker is basically saying, it's not my fault, it's Batman's fault. And something shifts and then Harvey Dent turns his face and you see the other side and it's maimed and it's burned. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. Amy and I were in that theater this movie had been going on for an hour and a half. They have had trailers. This character has existed in the comics for decades. And two 12-year-old boys in front of us lost their minds. 
As soon as Harvey Dent turned his face, they audibly gasped, Two-Face. And all of you were waiting on the punchline because you saw it coming a mile away, but these kids didn't. And Amy and I are dying laughing for the rest of the movie because we're like, how does Amy even know? And these boys don't. And their world was so rocked. And wherever they are somewhere, you know, 25 years old, they're like, the greatest movie of all time is The Dark Knight. And they're probably telling somebody about it at dinner right now. But it was so funny because I will never forget this light bulb moment. And I'm reading the Transfiguration story this week. And I'm like, this is so obvious to everyone but Jesus' inner circle. This is so clearly, we think, duh, there's something special about Jesus. But we need to remember that on the journey the disciples are taking... They are just gradually understanding a gradual unveiling that Jesus is more than a rabbi. They are gradually coming to terms with the fact that Jesus is more than a prophet. They're gradually coming to terms with the fact that Jesus is more than a lawgiver. They're gradually coming to terms with the fact that Jesus will be killed but God might somehow be in the midst of it anyway. To us that are reading it, we're like, duh, this makes sense on the mountain. But to them, it is a moment. You might recall last week and at the beginning of Mark's story that Jesus was baptized. And Jesus went down into the water by John the Baptist's hands. And then the heavens shone brightly and ripped open, and a dove descends that we're to believe is the Holy Spirit. And then a voice says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And John the Baptist, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, is telegraphed to us at the beginning of the movie, this is Elijah. This, Harvey Dent, is Two-Face. We know something they have yet to understand. Mark chapter 1, pillar number 1. Mark chapter 9, pillar number 2. The only other time, the next time, the heavens shine bright. Not so much through the sky, but through the dazzling unveiling of something heavenly about Jesus' person. I like to think of the transfiguration as a sort of veil being pulled back that gives us a glimpse of a reality that's always been under the reality. Jesus was walking, talking, eating, laughing, spending time with people, sleeping, struggling, sick, who knows, living a fully human life. But underneath it all, we're reminded that this is the beloved son of the heavenly father. And so for just a hot minute, 
the veil gets pulled back and we see the other part of his nature that is suffused with heaven's light. So instead of the heavens being rent apart, it's almost as if the veil is rent apart and we see shining through Jesus something of heaven into earth. And then it wasn't a dove that descends, it's a cloud that descends. Which is fascinating because there used to be this cloud that led God's people through a hard time. And before Jesus embarks on his own wilderness of confrontation, a cloud descends and a voice speaks again. This is the next time a voice speaks in Mark's gospel. This time, the voice says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. I know we don't have any English teachers in the room, but you want to look at the difference in those two sentences. Who is the sentence being spoken to at Jesus' baptism? Jesus. You, you, to whom is the sentence addressed at this transfiguration? Everyone else. This is my son whom I love. The implied you better listen to him. I need you to understand that because Mark 9 follows chapter 8, when Peter has this gradual understanding that this just might be the Messiah, but he can't reconcile how something heavenly can be a part of something as ugly as the crucifixion, Jesus says, let's go take a hike. And this is less a revelation of divinity, though heaven's light is shining through. If it was divine, then why isn't Elijah and Moses divine? Because they're there in some strange heavenly way as well. I think it's less a revelation of divinity and more of a confirmation of his identity. This one is the one that is anointed to inaugurate the kingdom of God at the baptism. This is my son whom I love. You better listen to him. Yes, suffering is part of the job. Yes, the third pillar when not heaven is bright, but the clouds are dark. Not the voice that cries out in love, but a voice that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or it is finished. And even a voice that calls out, they think, to Elijah. So many similarities in these pillars, but all of them pointing to the one that is a Messiah who will suffer for the sins and sake of the world. And yes, it's going to look different than you imagined, but this is who Jesus is. And it's like they audibly gasp, oh, Messiah? Could it be? So, we can deduce this because when the conversation down the mountain sounds like, hey, um, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come before the Messiah comes? Jesus goes, hey, Messiah, you're on to something. And if Elijah did come, which is John the Baptist, then what do you think that means for the Messiah? To which he's elbowing them again and they say, oh, he must be here. Less a revelation of divinity, more a confirmation of his identity. But what is up with Moses and Elijah? Elijah was the greatest prophet in Israel's history who had a mountain moment with God. 
He had a mountain moment with God in the king's letters. When he was at the end of his rope, he was done. He was facing a road of suffering and death and rejection. And in the mountain, he heard a whisper that encouraged him to keep on. Moses was the lawgiver who led Israel through the road of suffering in the wilderness. And he had a mountain moment where he went up the mountain. He received the law, the Ten Commandments, and then some. And he came down from the mountain, still with his own heavenly afterglow. It's like he got a holy sunburn on the mountain, and he came down, and he was still suffused with heaven's light as he brought the law. Paul will write about that in 2 Corinthians 3, and he said, Moses' glory was like a borrowed glory, and he got embarrassed when his sunburn started to fade, so he put a veil over it. And he says, it's like when we read the covenant and the law today, there's still a veil on people's hearts. They're still holding on to something. They're still like not seeing things as clearly. And he says, but we, we can see with an unveiled face. Because we see Jesus. And we, when we contemplate and behold Jesus, we are moved and formed and transfigured into his image. So what I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus is like Elijah, but not the newest Elijah. Jesus is like Moses, but not the newest Moses. Jesus isn't just the newest prophet. Jesus isn't just the newest lawgiver. In Jesus' mountain moment, all of a sudden, you have these two witnesses who are bearing witness to the one that stands at the center, but when they look up, they realize that there was only Jesus. And a voice doesn't say, keep listening to Elijah or keep listening to Moses, but listen to him. Now, before you think, should we never listen to Elijah or should we never listen to Moses? I say to you, if we walked outside on that sidewalk right now and looked up at the sky, are there still stars shining? Thousands of them in the universe? Yes or no? Why can't I see them as clearly? Because the sun is still shining. It's not that the stars just get swept out of the universe. It's that when the sun dawns and the sun shines, those lights take a back seat. Not that we get rid of them, but that when we see the sun, it fills in the light we need And it's the greater light. And if some of you are feeling uncomfortable with this, I would tell you to look at places like Hebrews 1. That says in the old days, God spoke through the prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Lights burning bright and showing us the way to come back to God. Jesus will do that. And then he spoke through the law, showing us the way to live, like Moses and all those that would come and call us to keep the covenant, like Jesus. But Hebrews 1 says that in these days, the last days, God has spoken through this son. 
who is the radiance of God's glory. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I'm told if you could read the Greek, it says he's like the shininess of God's shininess. He is the gloriness of God's glory. And he is the final and emphatic word that doesn't remove all the others, but they are the lights that have brought us through the time and the place that were drawing us to God and showing us God's way. But now that the sun has dawned, it illuminates what those were pointing to all along. And Jesus is what God has to say. And Jesus is what God looks like. Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, John 1, all ones that are setting the tone for their letters to say, look no further. Jesus in his ministry will say, you keep searching the scriptures because in them you think they have life, but life is only found in me. And then some of you are starting to get uncomfortable because you think I'm saying, who cares about the Old Testament? That is so not what I'm saying. You can't understand the light of the sun without the other lights reflecting and shining around the universe. Because here's the deal with the Old Testament. Elijah, who represents the prophets, and Moses, who represents the law, is this. Those things are fulfilled and focused and where the thing was headed all along in Jesus. The word for that in the Bible is telos. Telos is the end point. It's the terminus. It's the goal. It's when you take off with your flight, you are headed in a direction towards your final destination. The telos, where the thing is headed, no matter the bumps and bruises, it's going to make it by God's grace. Jesus is the telos of the prophets. Jesus is what God has to say. Listen to him. Jesus is the telos of the law. God's way is fulfilled and focused in Jesus. So listen. A few moments ago, the youth were discussing Matthew chapter 5, which begins the Sermon on the Mount. How many times did you read in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, but what? I say to you, what is Jesus quoting? The Bible, Moses. And this is a light, and this is a beautiful light, and it's a good light that was pointing people to God. But now that the sun is here, Messiah is here, the anointed king is here, I say to you, not something easier, but something so much bigger, so much deeper, something that becomes fulfilled in me, were you to come to me and abide in me, I'll teach you this way, but it's going to be focused, it's going to be sharp, it's going to cost all of you. Because Jesus will end the Sermon on the Mount by saying, by the way, don't think I've come to throw away the stars and throw away the law. No, 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 no. I've come to fulfill it. But what that means is, come to me. Listen to me. Follow me. The temple? No, no, no. I'm the place where heaven and earth meets now. The law? 613 commandments? No, no, no. Let me fulfill it and focus it. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. Give yourself to me in trust. And you'll find yourself soaked in eternal life now and forever. This is the gospel. The sun is shining. 
We don't throw away the stars. We don't neglect the stars. But we see them for what they are, pointing toward the blazing dawn of the Son who the Father loves. That's Him. Listen to Him. Find Him on the cross. And vindicated at the resurrection. So, the question then becomes, are we actually listening to Jesus? Theologically, you've heard it say, but I say to you, is Jesus the lens through which we handle God's word? Let me say it this way. Is the word of God the lens through which we read the word of God? I don't know if you noticed in that Lenten prayer that we prayed that Jaron led us in, but the word of God spoken of toward the end of it was a reference to Jesus. The word of God points to the word of God, Jesus. And so if you have to go back to Moses to refute Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And if that sounds like shocking and too much to you, I'm telling you, I think we've been discipled as flat Bible readers where we don't recognize that there's a telos in Scripture and where God's history is moving and that God's people with that covenant then was a good light. But now we have Jesus and he doesn't throw away the old, but he shows us where the thing was headed all along. So does it look like, sound like, is it rooted in the life, words, and works of Jesus? He's the ultimate tiebreaker. And all of God's word is inspired. All of God's word is God-breathed. All of God's word is profitable for teaching and rebuke and for understanding the quality and character of God. But the center point that keeps us centered is does it look like, sound like, smell like, feel like Jesus? who, as Scripture tells us, is the image of the invisible God. Are we listening to Jesus theologically? Are we listening to Jesus socially? Are we going to love the kinds of people that he loved, or are we going to still be suspicious when push comes to shove and I actually have to be in proximity with them? Or can I touch the unclean people? Can I break bread with the sinners? Are we listening to Jesus politically? I don't know if you know, but this is an election year. And you're like, dude, it's February and we're already having to do all these ads. Yes. And so lest you start to believe what they're telling you, that this is the latest and greatest and only hope, and you better vote this way or that, just take a breath. Look to Jesus, not to be uninvolved or to disregard, but just to say, where is my true allegiance? Where is my ultimate hope? Where is the telos of my life? Is it directed toward affinity and identity with this movement, this politic, this candidate? Or is my telos, my affinity and identity rooted in the one who is the king of an unshakable kingdom that is so much bigger than this one now? Am I listening to Jesus internally? Is the voice of the one that calls me beloved turned up? Or am I hearing all of the voice of the accuser telling me that, no, it shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be suffering. You shouldn't love. You shouldn't give. You're not worthy. You're not good. Am I listening to Jesus internally? 
And finally, am I listening to Jesus practically? When Jesus says to love and to give and to follow and to deny, am I going to live the way he lived? Because everything that Jesus asks, Jesus lived and showed us. It can be done through him. Which of these is most difficult for you? Maybe this is an invitation to say, where do I need to turn up the volume this week, this season of Lent? Consider those ways. Because Peter struggled to listen to Jesus, but his understanding grew, not so much on the mountain, because I think Peter realized when he just fumbled around and said, let's build three shelters to honor you. It was coming from a good place, but I think he learned pretty quick, oh, we're not meant to live up here. And so they make their way back down the mountain, and if you keep reading Mark 9, you see that they jump right back into the fire, and he's confronted with evil spirits and difficulty and lack of faith. But here's the difference. When they come down the mountain and they go back to the level plain, they do not come back empty-handed. There is something that is forming them and transfiguring them and moving in them. And you need to understand this, that the mountaintop transfiguration experiences are gifts, but they are rare. Because 99.9% of our life is going to be lived on the everyday level places that are hard. But for those mountaintop experiences that you might get, cherish them, hold on to them, and make sure when you're coming back down the mountain, you're not coming back into the fire empty-handed. I love this theologian named Miroslav Volf. He grew up uh, in a Protestant minority after his pastor father found God in the midst of a communist labor camp, like you do, you know? He was in prison. He came to Jesus. His family was transformed by it. And so Miroslav Volf, who became this theologian, was so marked by that upbringing that his work was composed even in the midst of a war of ethnic cleansing in his home country, which was formerly known as Yugoslavia. So this guy's alive, by the way. This is not like, man, crazy what was going on in the 1800s. No, this was just an underreported Eastern European situation from the last several decades. So he is coming to terms with the kinds of mountaintop experiences that he's reading about in the Gospels, and he's living in the fire of the level plain. And he's asking the question, how can God's love work to reconcile us after such devastation? Because I keep hearing American preachers talk about the mountains of transfiguration, and I'm living in the hell of the valley. And his most famous work is called Exclusion and Embrace. And thankfully, the world took notice because he's lived Matthew 5 and those things that Jesus fulfills and focuses to love and bless our enemies. This is what he says in his book called Soft Difference, which is a theological reflection on the church and culture in 1 Peter. I'm glad it's been up because it's deep, and we need to sit with it and understand what he's saying. 
He's saying that the new birth is neither a conversion of our, to our authentic inner self, nor a migration of the soul into a heavenly realm. But it is a translation of a person into the house of God erected in the midst of the world. Here's what he means. Some people teach that when you say yes to Jesus and you are transfigured and you are transformed and you are born into heaven, it's really just a reclamation and self-actualization of the God in you. No, no, no. It's not that. It's also not, on the other side of the spectrum, I'll fly away, oh glory, and I don't care about anything else. It's not that. What it is, is the translation, the transformation, the transfiguration of you, you, this person, with your warts, your pain, your past, your circles, you right now, but you are translated into the house of God that is being built right here in the midst of your neighborhood, your world, your busted up family, your difficult situation, your illness. And so when you view your transfiguration less on the mountaintop and more in the level plain, you realize that there is no space that is too far from the heavenly touch. That where I am right now, though painful, though difficult, is the house of God and the stairway to heaven. You see, I grew up thinking that the Christian life should just be this spiritual high where I just leapfrog from mountain to mountain to mountain. Sorry, did I say mountain? I meant youth camp, disciple now, the retreat in the fall. And then that service project, prayer lock-in in the spring, and then youth camp and D-Now and et cetera. Some of y'all are laughing because you grew up Southern Baptist too. I'm not saying don't climb mountains. What I'm saying is also climb the molehills of your everyday life and create space to look to and listen for the voice that is showing you how to live in the midst of a world that looks a lot less like heaven. But remember that the one who calls you is still with you, and you don't go empty-handed. We don't and can't just live on the mountaintop. Even Jesus had to come back down. But the question I'll leave you with is, will we walk and wait, look and listen, for the whisper of his words? Will we pay attention to the nudge toward his work along the level path we walk with the Holy Spirit? A pastor told me about how he was praying for something. He said, and I prayed about this for like four weeks. And what he meant was, I asked this question of Jesus multiple times, and then I just sat with it. And I just tried to listen and notice my thoughts, and notice what sounded like Jesus, and resisted what doesn't. That's what he meant. I prayed about it for like four weeks. As I was in the car, I was just like, you know what, Lord, help me. Help me, give me clarity. And he just paid attention to his surroundings and the interactions that day. Sometimes we think that 
only life is mountaintop. And I'm telling you that Jesus is walking and talking with you in the car on the way to work also. So go hike a mountain and look for Jesus. But until then, find him in the molehills. Find him on the way down. Find him in the fire. Wait, look, and listen to him. That we might be transformed for our good and his glory. Amen and amen. Go now and speak of what you have seen of God's glory. Those holy moments when heaven overshadows you are gifts to receive and carry you, but life is lived in level places. So listen to Christ and follow him for the places of revelation to the places of mission. And may God shine the light of glory into your hearts. May Christ be with you and never leave you. And may the spirit renew the image of God within you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord in the name of Christ. Amen.